Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, good morning. You know, it's nothing better than to strip away everything else, go to the Word of God. That is where life can be found, and that's where we're going to go today. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to, over the next few months, look at chapters 5, 6, and 7, better known as Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a lot to capture out of this. It's actually been a text I've wanted to teach here for the past nine years and never had the opportunity to do, and we're going to do it now this winter into spring. I wonder if you've ever traveled to a place different from what is typical to central PA, south central Pennsylvania that we all abide in around here, uh, but you don't have to travel too far to experience what I'm about to talk about. In fact, you could just go to Philadelphia or New York City and experience it. But where I first encountered it growing up in the Midwest, uh, where you're kind of far from the major cities uh, and you're also far, pretty much far from any country, uh, was when I took a mission team of 35 students to uh, Matamoros, Mexico. Now, I shared a story that happened uh, in Matamoros uh, a few weeks ago, but this one's a little different. This is going back a couple years before that one, where I experienced the marketplace for the first time in Mexico. Now, it's unlike anything here. You, you walk the streets, there are vendors everywhere, the stores are little doors that you go in and there's stuff hanging everywhere. Uh, as you're walking the sidewalks, people are trying to offer you something to purchase and to buy, and, uh, and, and the music is, is intense everywhere you go because every store has their, their Latin music playing, and, and uh, it's just a fun experience, very colorful Things are being offered to you that are actually appealing. First thing that I came across was chiclets gum. Anybody remember chiclets gum? You could buy chiclets gum like in, in the bunches for pennies on the dollar. And then as you walk through, you, you're seeing other things like Mexican blankets. I, I love to buy Mexican blankets, bring them back and give them to family members. Uh, and, and so there were just lots of things. But there were also things that people like to purchase that uh, my students got particularly excited about. 
I'll, I have very clear recollection of this moment where I'm walking the streets, being enamored by everything. A couple of boys come up to me that were uh, probably around 16 years old, and like, Pastor Tony, you're not going to believe this. Check out these Oakleys that we got for 20 bucks. Now, some of you are seeing that picture of the Oakleys we have on the screen now, and, and I could tell a little bit about you if the first thing you thought of was Randy Macho Man Savage. I meant it. Who thought that first? Yeah. I mean, some of you, you know, I, I grew up watching the, the, the wrestling on TV. My mom did not like that. But uh, Randy Macho Man Savage used to wear these glasses all the time uh, when he was uh, wrestling and, and talking in his own unique way. Uh, but these students genuinely thought they had just bought a pair of Oakleys for 20 bucks. Forget the fact that by the time they got back to the States just a couple days later, they were already broken. Then there's that special brand of watch. We can relate to it here in Lidditz because this watchmaker has a place here in our town. How many of you have been to New York City where you had the opportunity to buy a $50 Rolex watch? Oh, it's real. It's real, let me tell you. And there were some students that, that, that you know, saw these watches and they're like, Rolex, what's a Rolex? But some of my leaders... We're really excited, like, hey, check out my Rolex watch. Now, they were tongue-in-cheek because they knew it was fake, but they said, but it'll make me look good. And then there was that Gucci purse for $25. Oh, several of our girls bought that Gucci purse. It was kind of interesting. For some reason, every single one of them, the zipper just didn't work right. Know what I mean? There's always imposters to every authentic thing, especially the more qualitative item it is and high end and, and appearance of being, well, if you have one of these, you are really in, then you know there are going to be imposters. But there are other things where the fake shows up. Consider money. You ever exchanged unintentionally a counterfeit bill? Can you tell the difference between that which is real and that which is not? It's really difficult today when you take today's true $20 bill and then you take a $20 bill from even just 10 years ago and the face of the person's very different, the feel of the money's very different and you begin to wonder if that 10-year-old $20 bill is the real thing versus the $20 bill of today. But I've had the privilege of unfortunately handing somebody a $20 bill that I did not know was fake. And I was informed and that is an embarrassing moment. Have no idea how I got that bill. How about gold? You'll see it on your bulletin. That's actually pictures of true gold and fool's gold. Can you tell the difference when it's sitting in a hand? You're looking at it. The real thing versus the imposter. Sometimes, depending on the quality of the fool's gold, it can fool even the best of people. But boy, wouldn't it be a shame if you invested a lot of money because right now gold is worth a lot. What if you bought a big bar of fool's gold? It's embarrassing when you buy into the imposter thinking you had the real deal. Enough of us have been conned by online scams. You can get a free vacation if you just answer these particular questions. 
Sometimes those are real deals and sometimes they're not. How do you know when you come across the real thing? How about the most important thing that can happen in your lifetime? Whether or not you have genuine faith that saves versus a false faith that will destroy. Nobody wants to die on the face of this earth, come before God only to find out that they believed incorrectly. They put their faith in the wrong thing. It's too late at that point to be told by God himself. So would it be important to know whether or not you are following after the true faith or a false one, an imposter? Consider Matthew chapter five, verse 20, which is the end of the text we're gonna be reading today. Look at what it says. Jesus speaking. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if I was to be Jesus for the moment and speak to a contemporary audience and capture the same weight and authority and intent of this verse, it would read like this. For unless your righteousness surpasses that of your pastors and your seminary professors, you won't make it into heaven. If the Son of God, the most authoritative, influential speaker of all time, says something like that, would you not lean in an extra measure? Because getting this question right matters for all of eternity. Whether or not you have an imposter-like faith or you have a faith that genuinely will save you. The answer to that, your life depends on it. So as we go through this text, we're looking for the bona fide faith. Jesus literally is gonna spend this entire set of three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount to confront a superficial faith that will actually lead to destruction. But to highlight at the beginning of it the type of faith that saves. So to dedicate our next few months together into this text, I would like to pray on behalf of us all. So Father God, I know that it discouraged you and infuriated you that those who are meant to represent you misled and misguided the sheep. And the call is to truth. And so I ask that you would be with us over the next few months, that our hearts would lean in that we would allow ourselves the accountability of the text to filter our heart and our mind through it, humbly coming before you and coming under account. 
lest we convince ourselves our righteous deeds are enough. So move us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray, and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin to talk about this text. It was spoken on a hillside on the northern parts of Galilee. If you know the northern parts of Galilee, it's very quick when you come out of the water. It ascends to a high plain. On the east side, it rises to a very high plateau. It's the western side that kind of rises more gently, but, but comes to these plains where a lot of farming takes place. It was on the northwest corner in Capernaum where this was spoken. In fact, today, if you were to go to Israel, you could visit the place they call the place of Beatitudes. Because the first 10 verses of this, or 11 verses of this text, are known as the Beatitudes. The attitude of a person whose faith is sincere. Many believe that this is a single sermon. In fact, most believe that. It is possible that it's a collection of his sermons, but for the sake of familiarity, we will use the title Sermon on the Mount. To best understand and filter this with the intent of Christ, it's helpful to know the context of his message. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus makes a statement that's really important. So here it is. It's a description, I'm sorry, Matthew, about Jesus' preaching. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. So it's a suggestion that, then an implication that from this moment, there was a key moment that happened here. Jesus' message was about repenting because the kingdom of heaven was near. What was that moment that caused from that time on? Well, John the Baptist had just been arrested. So John had been the forerunner for Christ. He was the one preparing a way for the Lord. He was the one who was helping people's hearts become tender and ready for the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. But now John is being silenced because he's been put into a prison cell. So he's no longer being heard. This message, this moment is what created the message that says, from that time on, now that John's in jail, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's important to note that in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew says that the message of John preceding his arrest was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John's message that was being preached in preparation for the coming of Jesus is now concluded by the fact that he is incarcerated and Jesus then picks up the mantle and takes the same message going forward. Repent for the, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? In fact, if you were to study all the various biblical teachers, commentarians, those who've written dictionaries or encyclopedias from the scriptures, you're going to find that they cannot define the kingdom of heaven with a simple phrase. In fact, it takes paragraphs because the layers surrounding the term are significant. 
So I'm going to do my best because since the kingdom of heaven is the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to have an understanding and appreciation for what we mean by the kingdom of heaven. So here's my best way of defining it. It is the present reality and future expectation of the church's inclusion into the citizenship of heaven, heirship, as part of God's family. It is God's dominion. It is his presence. It is his approval. It is his leadership. It is his holiness. It is his perfection realized in part now, but yet fully in a time to come. So it encompasses, the kingdom of heaven encompasses the full presence of God and the full qualities of God and all that is espoused in him. But it also then includes the reality that the family of God, as citizens of his family, become heirs to this kingdom and we begin to realize and know God in part. So right now, while we cannot see God face to face, we are learning him about him and his heart daily. It's an ongoing transformation. We discover more and more about him as we lean into the text, and in particular, in studying the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. So our growth in this is important, but we are already realizing that we are citizens and heirs of the kingdom of heaven, that where God's presence dwells fully. That is why when Jesus was asked, how should we pray? He says this at the beginning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge that God is the heavenly Father and his name is above all other names. But we then petition to say, God, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on this earth as it is done fully in heaven. So it is our prayer that we would see the kingdom of God realized more fully here on this earth. And it is also our purpose. Jesus highlights that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. When confronting the people that were, that were so worried about the day's events. Can you relate? When they were full of anxiety and worry about concerns for today and in particular tomorrow. What was Jesus' words to them? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things. All these things we worry about will be given to you as well. So it's our prayer. It's our expectation. And it's something that we seek even today. To keep our eyes fixed on that which gives us hope for tomorrow. But the entry point into this kingdom begins with an attitude. It's a work of God in the human soul. That is described by one word. And it's the first word of what? the message of John the Baptist was, and Jesus, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent is that attitude, it's that posture, it's the mindset of the one who is preparing for the kingdom of God, both in the present and in the future. And ultimately, it begins with the change of thinking, because that's what the word means, literally. Literally. It's a change of mind. 
And when there's a change of mind, then there's a change of heart. And when there's a change of heart, there's a change of attitude and behaviors. So, John enters the scene. For centuries, all that they had were the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and Sadducees teaching them how to be right before God, this form of righteousness. And so this was deeply entrenched into their culture. Then John shows up and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change your mind, change your thinking, come to him, submit yourself to him. Acknowledge that you need to quit thinking so highly of yourself and come under the authority of God and let him change your mind and therefore change your heart. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. So it's under that teaching that we go into the text today to understand why the Sermon on the Mount is so important for us. So let's begin in verse 17 when it says, Do not think, and this is Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be get called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the statement that I give you leading into this text is, repentance reveals sincere faith that is kingdom bound. If you want to know one who is truly in line for saying, hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The one that's going to be received into the kingdom of God is someone who has repented and lives a life of repentance. But in this text, when Jesus throws down the gauntlet and says, if your righteousness does not exceed those of your spiritual guides, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And he actually says, and you certainly will not enter the kingdom of God. Then you're thinking, well, what's he saying? Is he saying that the law goes away? Because they teach the law so clearly and they abide by the law so emphatically. So their initial gut instinct was to think that Jesus was espousing the idea, the law goes away. But instead he says, no, I am not coming to abolish it. I'm coming to give meaning to it. I'm helping you understand what it fulfills. So to abolish means it's set aside. It, you get rid of it. To fulfill it means you're giving it greater understanding, greater meaning, or you're bringing it to completion in, a, in the fullest sense of its intent. I mean, think about the law this way. If you did not have the law, how would you know that which is holy? How would you know that which is good? How would you know that which is moral and true if there was no law? 
By the law telling you, do not do this. In other words, do not do this which is evil. But you can then discern from it, well, if that is evil, then I now know what is good. In the end of the day, in its fullest form, the law helps us know who God is by his character and what God is not in his character. We therefore can know the truth without distortion. Jesus doubles down. Not only is this law important, he's not gonna abolish it, he's gonna fulfill it. He's gonna give us better understanding of what this law points to. But he says, not even the smallest aspects of it will even go away. He uses this in verse 18, he says, for I tell you, I truly tell you, which is basically in the original language saying amen, amen, and amen, which means true, true, true. I tell you that not even the smallest thing of the law will disappear. Nothing until the end of time. But even then, it still stands as a marked contrast as to who God is and what he is not. And it gives even this aspect of characters, of the written texts. Imagine this. So some of you have translations of the Bible on your lap right now that would say that not even a jot or tittle will be removed. And the NIV that I just read, it says not even the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen. Well, let's talk about that smallest letter or the jot, okay? So in the Hebrew term, the jot is actually a letter and it's, and it's simple. But the best way that we can describe it here is the letter I, the small lowercase I. Now you see it up on the screen. Imagine if we took the dot off of it. And it was just the lower part of it, that little line. And it just sat on a page by itself. Would you know what it was? No. You add the dot and all of a sudden you have definition. You know that it's a lowercase i. And you might be able to figure it out, that little line, if it's between other letters, that maybe somebody forgot the dot. But otherwise, that dot is important. It defines the character. Then Jesus adds another thing. Even the slightest stroke of a pen or the tittle. This would be like taking the letters, capital letters P and the capital letter R. What's the difference between the two letters? It's that angled line. The P doesn't have it and the R does. Think about what that little line does to give definition to those characters. Imagine if somebody forgot to put the slashed line on the R and it was at the beginning of a word. Would it change the meaning? Very possibly. And it certainly would confuse you as to what the word is if it doesn't change the meaning. So that little line that's the angle line is the separation between those two characters. That's the same thing in reference to a tittle. It is the smallest part of a line that gives definition to a character. Without it, we wouldn't know what we're reading. So Jesus is basically saying, amen, amen, amen. True, true, true. I'm telling you, a dot off an I won't go away, nor the, the little angled line off of an R or the absence of it for a P will change with the law. It will stand forever. Then he says, and anyone, in verse 19, look what it says. It says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
What's he saying there? He's saying that anybody who tries to suggest that the law has changed and that something that might have been sin in earlier centuries is not now. We're getting a better understanding of God's heart on certain measures. You read me? Where it's like love defines what is true. Even if scripture is consistent from beginning to end to saying what love in its purest form looks like, what sexuality looks like in its purest form. It says, anyone who teaches the setting aside of even the least of the commands, and let me tell you, in this, the biblical laws that are stated, sexuality is not one of the least parts of it. It's a significant part because it represents the oneness that God intends between human beings as it is the oneness between God and the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three separate persons operating in complete unity. And biblical marriage is meant to exemplify that. And we've broken it beyond many's comprehension to understand truth. And he says, but if you take even the least of these things and set it aside as being unrelevant for now, you're going to be considered before God as somebody that's least in the kingdom of heaven. At this point, it would suggest that there's still a little bit of hope that they're gonna get there. But I don't know what the least type of citizen looks like in the kingdom of heaven. But I got a feeling when you get to verse 20, there's a threat that's even more great. But look at what it says at the end of verse 19. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, the entirety of the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's something else added there. It's, he, he warns the one that teaches in such a manner that would set aside parts of the law as being not necessary for today. Saying that you're at risk of being considered least in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, but the great one, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is somebody who not only teaches the law intact, but lives it out, practices it. Then maybe we get a hint as to what's going on in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is beyond that of the Pharisees, the pastors of their day, and the teachers of the law, the seminarians or the Bible school teachers of the day, unless your, your righteousness goes beyond theirs, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus got their attention. He realized that this was a moment where it was almost a drop the mic moment that if he was to walk away, they would be asking themselves, well, if their abidance of the law, which is to the extreme, and they let everybody know about it, that they live to that end, how are we to ever have hope to enter the kingdom of heaven if we can't be more righteous than them? Well, it's because Jesus spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of it and to the end of it, explaining that righteousness isn't about law abidance. It's about a transformed inner man, an inner being that leads to an application of the law in its fullest form. Let me explain. You see, at this point, 
the standard of righteousness that was taught by the pastors and religious teachers of that day. Literally, if you follow them to the letter and the way they taught it, you are being led to your own destruction. Jesus doesn't draw any soft lines here. He says, certainly, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because their definition of righteousness had the wrong set of values behind it. So let's look at what superficial faith looks like. The imposter to faith. The core values of an imposter faith is this. They believe that you must look good to be esteemed by other people. So it's about appearance and being esteemed. Another core value is that they believe in behavior modification and also bragging about it. They would fast more than anybody else. Again, removing food from their plate, going days without eating. And then they would tell others, I'm fasting. I'm a righteous man. Their core values was to make sure their behavior was above everybody else. But rooted in that behavior and this idea of looking good and being esteemed by others was this core value of being self-confident and capable of achieving righteousness on your own. That was core of their value. That they believed they were capable of achieving absolute rightness before God, therefore earning the attaboys from God. They also believed in their core value that the answer is found within your will, your gifts, your intellect. You see that riddled throughout the storylines of the Gospels as the Pharisees interacted with Jesus. They believed highly that they were intelligent and knew better. So with these core values, then you're going to see then indicators that those are the core values, or might I say, fruit. So what's the fruit of a superficial faith? Well, somebody who has a superficial faith will be resistant to learning and being corrected. Common trait. They resist learning and being corrected by others. What do I mean resist learning? Because they were ones that studied all the time. Well, they studied the philosophies, but they forgot the lab. It's one thing to teach on the chalkboard. It's another thing to go into the lamb and to see if it holds up. They were resistant to truly learning and finding out if their theories were correct, which then meant that they, over time, became extremely blind to obvious truth. As Jesus spoke things that clearly showed that he knew something greater. In fact, people were saying, this knowledge could not be from mankind. It must be from God. Yet, the Pharisees continued to say he was a madman. They were blind to the very essence of God. Another fruit that was obvious about them is they were easily angered by challenge. Don't challenge me. Don't challenge my position they would entrench themselves. Character development was also rarely considered. It's more about what I do than it is about who I am. They avoided accountability between peers and self-deception was rampant. These are the marks of someone whose faith is superficial. 
They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to have accountability. They're easily angered. They don't want to be corrected. And character is only a little part of the issue in their minds. A person of sincere faith, and you're going to discover this as you read the Beatitudes and we study them in the, ne- the weeks to come, beginning next week. But this is the core values of a sincere faith. A person with sincere faith looks beyond their self for help. They look beyond self for help. They recognize that their sinful nature and flaws have limitations. They look to Jesus for the example, the template and empowerment of living a righteous life. And as a result, therefore, their value is a greater emphasis on heart development. The inner man, therefore, affecting the outer man. These are their core values. And then what's the fruit of somebody whose faith is sincere? They grieve over their sinful condition. They're humbly dependent upon God directing their lives daily. They receive correction. They welcome truth and they strive to learn. Their character transformation becomes a daily work that they work at as they abide with Christ. They welcome accountability. And the awareness of sinful condition doesn't wane as they get older. It grows all the more. And so therefore their desire and encouragement grows in strength to live life anew through the strength that Christ provides. This is the fruit that is spoken of in the Sermon on the Mount that we become humble, we grieve over sin, and we welcome God's correction in our life. So here are the takeaways from today's text. First, God sees through the facade of a superficial faith that values legalism over inner transformation. We might think that our righteous acts and trying to do everything the right way might impress God, but it has no greater impression than it does when a child is being obedient to their parents while their attitude stinks the entire time they're doing it. It doesn't please a parent's heart when the legalistic response to their request or demand is met with a sour attitude. So too it is with God. Your righteous acts done with an inner being and character that is not exemplified of his character means nothing to him. He sees right through it. Which is why then repentance becomes important. We need a change of thinking. We need a heart change, not just a mind change. We need to do a 180. Somebody whose faith is real, that can have confidence that when they come before God, he'll say, come into my kingdom, is the one that knows how bad of a sinner and deep of a sinner they are and how great of a savior and work of the Holy Spirit can be in a person's life. The kingdom of God is made up of people who are increasingly becoming more like Jesus and less like the world. You see, you can do all the law-abiding things, 
but you're gonna send a confusing message if your character, your spirit, and your attitude doesn't line up with the law you advocate for. Which is why Jesus was infuriated and he said, there is no way you should have any expectations to enter the kingdom of heaven if you think that the righteousness of legalism will get you there. You need Jesus. So as we go through these next few weeks, Jesus is gonna talk about the law, but then talk about God's intent. Talk about the law and then giving greater understanding to that law and how it plays out in life. And he's gonna speak to the attitudes and purity of heart. And I trust that by the end of this series that our faith will be much more purified, bona fide, because we confront the superficial faith that maybe has taken root in our hearts. Let's pray. So Jesus, it is my desire that people would get to experience life as you intended, the life on this earth that is found in Christ alone, that is free, that is filled with joy, that gives purpose for living. I don't fear the law whatsoever because I live in accordance with you and therefore it keeps my feet in better places. I don't fear for tomorrow because I trust in one who knows tomorrow. I don't have anxiety riddling me today because even with my confusion of the day's actions, I get that there's a sovereign God at work. But the world needs to hear these things. They need to see that there is a loving God who desires to give life that is free from the anxiety and worries of today and gives hope for tomorrow. So Lord, work in our hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand please?
John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. His greater, greatest means that he can do that is by misle- misleading, subtly, taking that which is good, the law, and making you think that the law is the end game. It's merely the pointer. It points to God and our need for God. And so the thief would like to cause you to think, if I just do everything good, I'm, I'm all right. But it's gonna lead you to an imposter type faith. Jesus says, while he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Because I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You're gonna see as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that it regularly points to the law and then gives greater meaning to the life side of it. Jesus is the living embodiment of God and human skin. He is the one that shows us the character and intent of how to live. And we're gonna take joy in looking at all the things that he does that goes beyond the letter of the law to give us greater meaning. It is my prayer that you will lean in and seek after Jesus who can change the greatest of sinners life. I heard a story this week that somebody says, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. There's no way God could save me. Oh, yes, I can. It doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Christ cannot be out And so this is an invitation to come into relationship with Jesus and be made pure as snow. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning, there'll be people in the encounter room, my left, your right, as you walk out the door, they'll be glad to pray with you. If you're at home, reach out to us or reach out to somebody that's there with you to talk to them about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. We don't want imposters, we want the real deal because we wanna spend eternity in heaven with God forever, together. Having said that, go in the confidence that Jesus' blood is enough trusting in that and then growing in relationship with him so we can become more and more like him so that others can discover life anew. Amen. And you're dismissed.